We're starting a brand new series today called God is Happy. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, God's happy. Turn to the person on the other side and say, God's happy. <laughs> and so this is going to be a three-part series. And uh, I, have, I have a couple purposes that I'm trying to accomplish in this series that I'm praying that happens in you, happens in me, happens in our church. The first purpose that I'm trying to, to get to through this series is I want to destroy the lie that God exists in a state of anger. I want to destroy that. I want you to know that he's a happy God. The second thing that I'm trying to accomplish with this series is I want to prove that God actually delights in you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. And then the third thing that I'm trying to accomplish with this series over the next three weeks is if God abides in a state of happiness, then so should we as his sons and daughters. So I want to help us get to that. Uh, a couple years ago, I was, uh, a friend of mine uh, had, a, had, a, had a parachurch organization, and he wanted to introduce me. We were doing a project here at the church, and he wanted to introduce me to this very wealthy, philanthropic uh, widower here in the Dallas area. Uh, she wasn't worth millions. She was worth, with a B, billions. And, uh, and she uh, was very philanthropic and always helping and giving to things. She was very passionate about, um, uh, she is very passionate about the homeless and the people who are down and out and substance abuse and things like that. And so uh, he wanted me to meet her uh, and based on one of the projects that we were working on, see if she would be interested in, in getting behind it. And so uh, we went to her house and it was in a, a gated, uh, specialized area in the Dallas area uh, where people like me aren't allowed to go. And, um, and I think they did a full body cavity search as I went through the gate to get to her house, and, uh, and we got there, and she was very sweet, very intelligent, uh, she, uh, an older lady who'd been around the world and seen a lot, very involved in, in politics and things like that, and, and, and just a high-end individual. And as we sat and we talked about the project, and she was deciding whether she was interested in financing it, uh, she made a statement to me. And she said something like this. She said, you know, pastor, I'll be honest. And she, she attended the local Lutheran church. She said, I'll be honest with you. I love the Jesus of the New Testament. But I cannot stand, nor do I believe in, the angry God of the Old Testament. And as she said that, it just kind of hit me. And I, and I kind of felt really, really sad in a moment. Because I, I realized that this woman has a bad picture of who God is. See, the God that I serve is a good God, not only in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. The God that I know and the nature that I know of the living God, he's not a man who sits in anger. He's not a being who can't wait for you to make a mistake so he can smack you real good. That's not his nature at all. But as I have grown in ministry and done a lot of ministry around the world, it has come to my attention that some of us are more like this woman than, than we would admit. That we have an imagery of who God is, and it's not the right imagery. And so our key scripture in today's teaching, as we jump into trying to help you understand who God is in his nature, our key scripture is found in Psalms chapter 30 and verse 5, and it says it like this. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Come on, somebody. You got that? And so that really is the theme of everything I want to teach you today. Yes. He has moments of anger, but it only lasts a moment. But his favor, on the other hand, lasts a lifetime. And so as I kind of was preparing for this, I wanted to go and find all the scriptures I could that kind of represent and showed that God is a God of anger and wrath. And so I went through the entire NIV Bible, and I, I researched every passage of scripture that said he is the God of blank. And I was looking for God of anger, God of wrath. And there was over 400 scriptures that used that verbiage, he's the God of. Because if, I, if, 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 I'm, if I'm Adam of the McCain's, you know, that's who I am. And so he's the God of. And so I went through every one of those over 400 scriptures. And guess how many scriptures I found that said he's the God of anger or the God of wrath or some verbiage that's real similar. Zero. 
Not one. Couldn't find one scripture that said he is the God of. This is what he is. This is what he's of. On the other hand, as I especially went through the Old Testament, the first place that I found they're using that verbiage in the book of Genesis, that he's the God of heaven and earth. He created it all. He's the God of heaven and earth. And then as God engaged humanity, after humanity sinned and walked away from him, and humanity grew on the earth, pagan away from the living God, he went and he found a man, a man by the name of Abraham. And he said, Abraham, you seem to still love me. You still want to have a relationship with me. I want to make a covenant with you and everybody that you'll ever have. All your children, 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 children. I want to be your God. And by us being in relationship, all the peoples of the world will see, look how good it is to be in relationship with the living God. And it will attract them back to myself. And Abraham said yes. And from that point forward, we start seeing him being called the God of Abraham. And then Abraham had Isaac and Jacob. So then we see him called all throughout the New Testament. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's it talking about? It's pointing to the fact that he's in a covenant relationship with a group of people. He, and he could be in covenant relationship with you if you would come and join him. That was the imagery that he was trying to paint. Then as, his, as their descendants, as Abraham's descendants grew, they became to be called the Israelites or the Jews. And so then we see it shifting in, in the prophetic books. It's, he's, the God of the Isra- he's the God of Israel. And we start seeing he's the God of this. And again, what's he saying? What's that imagery? That imagery is I'm in personal relationship with a group of people and would like to be in relationship with you as well. And there nowhere did I find he's the God of anger or he's the God of wrath. In fact, as you jump into the New Testament, guess what I really found? I found that Romans 15, 13 said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace as you trust in him. Romans 15, 33 said, may the God, of, or excuse me, the God of peace will be with you all. So he's a God of peace. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, and the, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Peter 5, 10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. What I found is he's not a God of anger. He's not a God of wrath. Just the opposite. He's a God of peace. He's a God of love. And he's represented as that in the Old Testament as well as the New. But somehow this woman had a skewed image of who God was. She had a skewed image of a father figure, of our our father God. And so I began to research this out. Why do people have a skewed image of who God is? Why do they think that he is angry? Why do they have this deep down in their psyche that he really is waiting for them to make a mistake so that he can spank them, discipline them, and if they don't do right, he can't wait to send them to eternal darkness? Why is that imagery and why is that in the psyche and, and, and internal pieces of so many people, even Christians? And I came to two conclusions. I want you to write these down. Number one, it's because... Dead religion uses fear to control. Dead religion uses fear to control. Let me, let me let that sink in for a second. Dead religion uses fear to control. You cannot get past the fact that in the dark ages, 1500s, 1300s, that the Roman Catholic Church, which represented Christianity on a global, throughout Europe, uh, on a global scale, if you will, representing what Christianity was supposed to be, became wicked, became undone, and the whole reason they were able to continue in that, because men that didn't know God became leadership over the church. The reason why that junk was able to happen is because they controlled the people, and they made them do penance. What they told them was, when it says repent, what he's saying is do penance, do good work, 
works and God won't kill you. God won't destroy you. He'll let you into heaven if you're good. And what dead religion has to do, it has to teach you to be fearful of the living God so it can control you. We see the same thing with Islam. They don't know if they're going to go to heaven or not. And so what they teach them to do is if you're the most radical, if you do the most radical thing, you got a better chance of Allah favoring you. This is what dead religion does. Some of you came out of dead religion. There are even churches, even today, around the metroplex, around the world, who tell you that if you don't come and get saved every Sunday because you committed a sin, you're going to end in hell forever and ever and ever. And what that is is a skewed vantage point of who God is. It's using fear to get you to do what needs to be done in their minds. And what that does is it breaks down the real relationship of a loving father. It breaks down the confidence that I have in, all, in my dad. It breaks that down because I'm never going to be good enough. I'm always going to be lacking. And I'm always going to be in need to do better because he's not pleased with me. Here's the second reason why people think that God is angry. And that is because there's been a misunderstanding in the biblical moments where God is angry. God does not live in a state of anger. But there are biblical moments where we see his anger. No and or buts about it. There are biblical moments where we see his anger. And in these circumstances, you need to understand, anger is a response or his response to the situation, not the state of his being. Let me say it again. So when we see these moments in Scripture where God is angry, and the Bible says he's angry. We're going to look at one of them here in just a second. This is a response to, his, to the situation that he's in dealing with people, not the state of his being. I'll give you an example of what I'm trying to say. I bet you have never been out in the parking lot about to beat your kid from one inch within an inch of their life. I, I'm sure that's never happened to you. I'm sure you have never been in the grocery store and just couldn't take it anymore, grabbed them by that ear, turned that ear, looked them in the eye and said, you do it again and see if I don't kill you right here. I'm sure you've never done anything like that. But had I caught that on YouTube, uh, on video, and posted that on that moment, we would all think you are an angry, wicked, horrible mother. But what we haven't seen is the 16 hours of rebellion and misery that that child has put you through leading up to the point where you're like, I'm angry. You have created this monster. Ah, you know, you've done this. And that's exactly what I, the point I'm trying to make. Has, do we see God's anger in Scripture? Absolutely. But God does not live and abide in a state of anger or wrath. That's not the God we serve. What was our key Scripture? His anger lasts a moment. But what? His favor Last a lifetime, forever and ever and ever. Is he angry at times? Yes. And most of that anger we see, especially in the Old Testament, as he's trying to have a relationship to be the God. You promised me that you would do this. And I promised that I would do this. I promised I would take care of you. I would watch over you. You promised you'd be faithful to me. And here you are, adultery, running off with other gods. Here you are lying about our relationship, and you don't even acknowledge me anymore. And so we have this moment in the book of Samuel that I'd like to point out to you. It's a moment where David has finally become king. Up until this point, the Ark of the Covenant has been a central piece uh, at this point in Israeli, in, in is, Israeli worship to God the Father. God had them build a gold box, if you will. And in that box was put the Aaron's rod. In that box was the Ten Commandments, pieces like this. And it was a holy box. And God said, wherever this box goes, my presence will be there. It, it, it's almost as though God was saying to them, I want to give you imagery. Since everyone around you has these pagan idols, I'm not that. I'm beyond that. But I do need you to have a point of reference so that you know that I am there. Because you have limited understanding. So we had this Ark of the Covenant. His presence literally would abide on that Ark, in that Ark, if you will. 
And so through every, in fact, the scripture says that everywhere they took the Ark of the Covenant, where they would go before, when the priests, would, uh, the Levites would walk out in the water, carrying that Ark, the water would split and all the people would go on dry ground. It was an imagery for the people that God was with them. But over time, they'd gone back and forth fighting Philistines and so forth and so forth. The temple was all, you know, not there. And so David becomes king and he wants to reestablish the temple in the city of David, in the capital city that he was creating. Meanwhile, this Ark of the Covenant had been stored at, at Abinadad's house. And he had a son named Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H. He had another son, Ahio, A-H-I-O. And he had these children that had grown up with that Ark of the Covenant sitting in the back bedroom, knowing that it was there in the presence of God. And because the presence of God was there, the, uh, uh, Abinadad was so blessed. God, God cared for I mean, just took care of his family. David decides he wants to get the presence of God in the city of God where he lives, in the city of David, excuse me. So he sends forth uh, all of Israel is going to go out and go get, this, go get this Ark of the Covenant. So they go out there, and David picks Uzzah, the sons of Abinadab, and, and, and Ahahu, to put that ark, put it on a brand new cart, pulled by ox. Put it on that cart, and you guys, you guys watch, uh, march around it and uh, help us get it up on the cart, and you're going to kind of be in charge of it. And so let's pick up there as they're trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant into, if you will, the city of David. And we're going to pick up 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. It says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakun, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the ox stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. Anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died beside the ark. When this moment happens, so you get the picture of the, the, you know, the ox is pulling this cart, and on this cart you know, is, is the Ark of the Covenant, and all the people of Israel are out there dancing and singing. We're going to bring the presence of God to the new, to the new city of David. And David's our new king. It's going to be awesome. And all of a sudden, the ox stumbles, and the little two-wheel cart kind of tips a little bit. So Uzzah reaches out to keep it from falling over. He's going to keep God from falling. Reaches out to stop it, and all of a sudden, he's dead. God kills him. Boom. And David's like, oh, no, you did not. If you go and continue reading, I'm just going to paraphrase it all for you for a second time. Oh, no. And then he gets, he gets first mad at God. Then he gets scared. Like, how can God's presence come into my life? What, what if I accidentally touch the box? I'm going to die too. And you see this fear grip him. So David's like, dump it off over at this dude's house over here. And Obed-Edom had a house close by. So they dumped it off at Obed-Edom's house. And so it was at Obed-Edom's house for three months. And they came and told David, hey, you're not going to believe this. Obed Edom, he's won the lottery. He just grew six inches. I mean, they just go down this list. Oh, God's blessed this dude. Oh, sorry, that, that's my dream comes true. Sorry. <laughs> wow. I realize you're like, what's six inches? I do anything. Yeah. Yeah. B57, see how your life works. So give me. That's right. The reason why I'm not on GQ is anyway. So. <laughs> And so, and so they're like, oh my goodness, God is really blessing this guy. And David's like, I've got to have the presence of God. And then David does what he should have done in the beginning. He goes and researches, how is God's presence supposed to be handled? And he finds out that he's made some great mistakes. So this, this storyline is covered, this, this, this uh, moment is covered not only in Samuel, but it's also co- covered in Chronicles. So let's pick up where David has a revelation of what he needed to do different. First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 12 through 15. So he pulls the Levites in. And he says, the tribe of the Levites, he pulls them in. He says, you and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord. 
wait a minute, we didn't ask us or anybody to consecrate themselves. They didn't go and repent of their sins. They didn't ask God to forgive them and cleanse them themselves and go through a ritual cleansing, anything like that. Not only that, they're not Levites. So Levites, consecrate yourself, um, uh, the God of Israel, to the place I prepared for it. Verse 13, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Verse 14, so the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried, everybody say carried. They're not pulling it with a cart. What are they doing? They carried, are you there? The ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. God wasn't mad for the sake of being mad. God had given clear instruction years and years earlier. And David in his haughtiness, David in his arrogance, David in the fact he just he's all popular and he's won everything and he's acting like he's humble and he needs the presence of God. David didn't, by way of apathetic or by way of pridefulness, he did not research out how is God to be treated in this moment. And they take this box and they put it on a cart. First and foremost, you need to understand something. In biblical times, no king rode in a cart. They were carried by their subjects on their shoulders. And the fact that you would dishonor the living God by putting him on a cart, that cart, that's how you pulled your produce to market. Cart, that's what you did when your kids didn't feel like walking anymore. You threw them up on a cart. That is not the proper respect for the living God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And so God's like, oh, you're messing it up, baby. And then you're going to take Uzzah? He's not even a Levite. And a Ahu? And you're going to put them? Let me tell you something. If they touch the box, they touch my presence, it's going to kill them. Not, they, didn't even, they didn't consecrate themselves. It's going to kill them. If the Levites are carrying it on their shoulders, do you think they're not bumping into that box? Why are they not dying? Because they consecrated themselves and because it's who God said that was supposed to carry the box. You say, man, that seems a little difficult. Well, let, let me put it in perspective for you. I have done the funeral. I have done the funeral where somebody who wasn't supposed to be carrying grandma's body as a pallbearer somehow got on the list to be a pallbearer. And when baby girl found out that Damon was a pallbearer, I was standing there when she went, oh, no, I don't know who he thinks he is, but he ain't got no right. He ain't even know my mama. He don't get the care. His name ain't going to be on no piece of paper right now. And oh, family drama went crazy. Why? Because he didn't deserve that space of honor for he did not know. Come on, somebody. See, the Levites were supposed to be representatives of God. They were supposed to be intimate with the Lord. They were his representatives. Uzzah didn't represent me. I don't even know that dude. And if he touches my presence, it's going to kill him. And it did. Not only that, but see, that Ark of the Covenant had been 15 years in Uzzah's house. He grew up with it. And guess what happened? Because familiarity breeds contempt, it wasn't special to him. It's what was in the back room his whole life as a kid. I warned some of you that have been in church your whole life that you don't treat the presence of the Lord with contempt. Oh, well, we sang that song before. Oh, well, you know, back in the day we used to do it like this. <laughs> and you misappropriate it. So God doesn't live in a state of anger. But his response to their rebellion in this moment, to their apathetic approach to his kingship, he had to teach them a lesson. Because if I come into the city and you disrespect me there, 
It won't just be one dude who dies. It'll be a whole city who dies. Because my glory and my power are inconceivable. We don't see God in every one of these incidents in the Bible where we see God was angry and this many died or this many. It was always a response to either their rebellion, their disrespect, their sinfulness. It was never a state of his being. And if you're not careful, what will happen is you'll misappropriate who he is because of a passage that you didn't study out properly. When I first read this passage as a, as a young Christian, I, I was like, I got mad. I was like, dude, so if I, if, if I do something wrong, you're going to kill me? Like, what? Like, well, I ain't going to be a Christian because I know I'm going to do something wrong. There's no way not to. Because I was, no one taught me the truth of what, what the passages are really about, who his nature really is, what is he really like. So there would be this conflict. Okay, how is he a loving God if he kills people because they touch the box? Because I didn't have an understanding of all, come on somebody, how can she be a mama who whipped her kid like that at the mall? Yeah, you should have been there when he threw his sippy cup across the, across the uh, minivan. You should have been there when he purposely said, no, and hit me in the face. All right? I have long suffering, but my suffering long has come to an end. And he needs to feel the anger so that he won't do that anymore. Are you with me? This is the nature of our God. So let me give you, since hopefully I've proven the point to you that he's not an angry God. I, had, I, had, uh, I grew up in a, uh, when, mom, when mom was a single parent, before pop came into our life. We lived with my grandmother in this little neighborhood. Down the street uh, was my best buddy. His name was Anthony. And he was my best buddy because he had a good-looking sister named Shauna. And I didn't really like him, but I really liked Shauna. So he was a means to an end. Come on, somebody. And so, and so but, you know, I was, I was in elementary going into junior high age during this interaction with them. But their dad had been in a car accident. And their dad couldn't go to work. He... he, he was in, a, it was in a, a back brace, and he was in constant pain, constant pain. He had to sleep in the lazy boy in the living room. So <clears throat> I would go over to their house and knock on the door and, uh, just to see if they could come out and play, and he'd yell, Who the blank is at the door? I, Can Anthony come out to play? You get your blankets that way, I'll shoot you whoever it is. And this angry, angry man created something in me, a fear of angry, angry men. <laughs> and so, you know, I would be hanging out with them, and we'd be playing or something outside, and they're like, hey, let's go inside and get a snack or something. I'm like, no, nah, I'm okay. I'll stay right out here. No, nah, come on. Man, I don't know. Is your dad asleep? I mean, because you can't go in the house without going past the living room and him sitting up in that chair. What y'all doing in here? I'm trying to sleep. And uh, always angry, always mad. Probably because of the pain and the suffering that he was in. I don't know why. The why is not, the why, the why is irrelevant. What he was was an angry man. He was an intimidating man. He was a, a man who created in us as kids this lack of desire to ever want to be around him. So we'd go inside to get some water, and he's steadily yelling at him. Stay way out. Get out of here. And I'm like, man, I'm trying to get out of here. I'm trying to get, look, I don't need no water. I'm good, dude. I'll just go drink from the ditch. I'm all right because I'm not going to, I don't want to be around. And what it created as a kid, what it created was this, this need never to be around that man. And if your image of God is that he's angry, that he's wrathful, that he's waiting for you to make a mistake so he can spank you, what that's going to create is a desire never to really want to be around him. So here we are worshiping. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And you're just like, man, I don't know about that. I'm really, I, I can sing it, but on the depths of who I am, 
I know that he's waiting to get me for making a mistake. And if that's your imagery, then I can never get you really to enjoy this life. I can never really get you to understand that he really does love you until that shifts. So to help you with that, I would like to give you just, there's much about God's nature and his character. But I'd like to give you four major pieces of who God really is, the nature of who God really is. Is that okay? Say yes. Number one, the first good, the, the first true piece about God's nature, God's true nature, number one, is that he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Ephesians 34, 5. Again, Old Testament, Ephesians 34, 5. God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. You ever had that friend you just couldn't get to fight nobody? Like no matter what you, some of you guys are bad too. You bring them to the bar, get them drunk to see if you can get them to fight somebody. Just couldn't get them mad. They just had that disposition. They just had that personality. Let me tell you something. God is slow to anger. Does he get angry? Yes, but he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. That's who he is. He's slow. Aren't you glad that the moment you make a mistake, he doesn't go, ha-ha, Aren't you glad? Aren't you so glad that he's slow to anger? I don't know about you, but for a person who's an idiot, I am so grateful that he's slow to anger. Like, God, I know I did that again. I am so sorry, but I sure do love you. And he's just slow to anger. Oh, it's okay. I love you. Let me whoop you a little bit so you won't do it again, so you remember. He's slow to anger. Here's the second part of his nature that you need to understand that we see all throughout Scripture, and that is his love endures sometimes. His love endures forever. I love this in Psalms 1 and 5. For the Lord is good. Do you believe that? Say yes. And his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. I hold to that. His faithfulness continues through all. His love endures forever. That, that not just is his faithfulness to Adam and Jamie McCain, but to Cohen and Mariah and, and, and Adeline McCain. And the, for, through all generations, Lord, you're going to be faithful. I know you're faithful to me and my wife, but Lord, I want you to be faithful to my grandkids and my great-grandkids. And all the way down throughout that he's faithful from generation, all generations, to generation to generation. He's faithful even when we're not faithful. Why? Because his love endures forever. It endures. I love that the imagery there is endures. In other words, we constantly attack his love, don't we? We constantly challenge that love. We constantly give him a reason to say, my love, oh, I got to give it to you again. Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> the other day, my kids did something. I just went, oh, I love you. Mm, I love you. 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 I'm like, dad, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just convincing myself how much I love you. I love you. Oh, dear God, because I've told you not to do this 17 times today. Oh, dear Jesus. I don't think God sits there doing that, but I definitely get the imagery that his love endures. And the reason that it has to endure is because I I constantly attack that with my stupidity, with my sinfulness. Are you with me? Say yes. Here's the third thing you need to know about his nature, and that is this. He is satisfied. There's so much depth to this piece. I don't have time to unpackage it all. But let me just help you understand. God lives and exists in a state of satisfaction. Look what the book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 11, it's talking about, or that whole chapter, it's talking about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ is going to make on the cross to bring humanity. It's a prophecy. Isaiah's prophesying about the Messiah and what he's going to do. And, uh, and, and look what it says. It says, and after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. And be satisfied. 
What this is saying, if I could, if I could kind of help you grasp what that whole passage, I just kind of pulled that one piece out. But what, what that passage is talking about is that God and, and all the justice that needs to be satisfied. See, when you and I sin, when we, if a person kills somebody, don't you think they should go to jail? They should pay for it. That's called justice, right? We call that justice. If somebody uh, molests a child, they should pay a penalty for their sinfulness, for that act, that destroying that child, that family, the, the, the well-being of that family. You have destroyed that. There should be justice. Justice is you and I saying, hey, you need to fix what you've done. You need to pay for that. That's what justice is. Well, when you and I have sinned against God, which we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there has to be a payment for it. And what Jesus did on the cross is he satisfied that payment. It's been paid for for you, for you, for you, for me, for all the sins we'll ever commit and all the sins we've ever committed. Jesus once and for all satisfied satisfied the justice that was needed so that you and I could be in relationship with the living God. It's been paid for. So God doesn't live in a state of dissatisfaction, waiting for you to be right, waiting for you to do right. He's satisfied. Why? Because Jesus did it once and for all. It's done. It's been paid for. So he lives in a state of satisfaction. And as sons and daughters of the living God, as followers of Jesus Christ, as Jesus being the, if you will, the initiator of this relationship with the Father, making a way, being the spotless lamb of God who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, as we come into relationship with Jesus, confess him as our Lord, following him as our Lord and Savior, and then obeying his teachings, what happens is God the Father looks at us and he doesn't see our sin as Christians. What he sees is what Jesus did on the cross. So it has been satisfied. The need for justice has been satisfied because Jesus did it once and for all on the cross 2,000 years ago. So the reason why you need to know that is because Jesus, excuse me, God the Father is not sitting there dissatisfied with you. You're not good enough. You'll never make it. No, he's satisfied. Jesus did it. Good job, son. Oh, you're the man. You're the man. You're the man. And they belong to you. And as a result of belonging to you, they have access to me. Why? Because he is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through Christ. Jesus satisfied the justice that our sin created, impropriety, separation from God the Father. Jesus justified that by dying on a cross, and God the Father is now satisfied. Are you with me? Say yes. And that's, what, that's, that's a Isaiah 53, 11 passage. And then here's the last piece about the nature of God, and that is God, number four, is happy. He's happy. He's not angry. He doesn't live in a state of anger and frustration. Does he get angry? Sure, just like you and I do. But he doesn't live in that state. Some of you live in a state of dissatisfaction. Some of you live in a state of anger and frustration. And I want you to know, it's because it's you don't have a good imagery of who your father is. And someone has told you, dead religion told you, that he's angry. He's constantly frustrated. He's constantly dissatisfied. Let me, let me just tell you something. Let me just help you with this. God is happy. He doesn't go, oh, I, oh me. Oh, me, myself. I can't believe who's president now. Oh, man. Oh, what are we going to do? I don't think he said, he doesn't walk around heaven going, oh, Adam did it again. I knew he would. Knew he would. I knew he would. Whew. I, I don't know. I'm stressed out. I need a break. He doesn't, he's happy. Why? Because he's God. <laughs> what is there that can come against the Lord our God? What is there that can steal his happiness? He is, if you will, the state of happiness. I thought, to teach this point, there's a couple things I need you to understand. If you don't get that God is happy, it'll create a couple things in you. If your vantage point of your father, your heavenly father, is skewed, 
it'll create some difficulties in your life. And I was going to bring those points out, but, um, but I thought I'd rather have somebody else do it, someone who actually has a real personal connection to this concept. And so if you will, just grace me for a moment as I bring um, a guest speaker actually um, today, just for two minutes. They're just going to speak for two minutes. And so uh, they said yes, and they're willing to come speak for us for just two minutes. And so uh, Joyce Myers, would you come on out here? Joyce Myers is actually, we got her on video. Go ahead and play her on video. I got you. I got every one of y'all. You know, I was abused while I was growing up by my dad sexually and mentally and verbally, and he was an alcoholic and just mean and violent. And I think my only ambition was to survive life and, and get out of his house. I mean, I just wanted to get to be 18, get out of school so I could get away from him. Now, for some people, if they have a poor relationship with their father, it's often said that then that can affect their relationship with their heavenly father. Mm-hmm. Was that something you had to wrestle with? In some ways I did, and in some ways I didn't. I think the biggest thing that I had to to deal with was not feeling like that God was mad at me every time I made any kind of a little mistake because the home that I grew up in, I mean, you just never knew what was going to set my dad off. A lot of it was just dependent on his mood, and uh, he was just angry a lot. And so when he would get angry, there would always be punishment, whether that was not talking to you or you know, giving you some kind of correction or not letting you do something you wanted to. And so I, it took me a long, long time to realize that God wasn't mad at me. That, you know, God can get angry, but he's not an angry God. He doesn't, his anger doesn't last for long. You know, his, his, he's merciful and kind and good. And, and certainly the moment that we're sorry for anything we've done wrong, you know, there's complete and total restoration. So that was probably one of the things that I struggled with the most. Another thing that I really struggled with was learning how to enjoy life. I never really got to be a child. I just, I don't ever remember being free and a kid and not having responsibility. And my father was abusing me. And the big thing was, you know, not to make sure I didn't tell anybody. And so I lived with this terrible secret all the time. And uh, I just, we just didn't enjoy life. My, I can remember getting in trouble for laughing and having fun because my father was just so unhappy. And um, so it took me a long time to, to finally really learn the true meaning of John 10.10, 10, that the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that you might have and enjoy your life and have it in abundance to the full until it overflows. Come on, will you stand with me all across the room? <laughs> So Joyce Myers just pointed out two truths that I think you need to grasp. If you see God the Father is angry or vengeful or wrathful, if that's your imagery of what that relationship with him and you look, looks like, it'll create two things. She pointed out first and foremost, every time you sin, you're going to think God's angry at you and he can't wait to, to discipline you and punish you. I don't live like that. See, the reason why I had to have Joyce Myers come and share her story is because I didn't really have a dad growing up but when Pop came into our life he was just the opposite of what she experienced he was grace he was long suffering I didn't want him in our life I didn't want a new dad and he and he bared with me until until we bonded so I didn't really have this testimony like this I didn't have this experience so when I look at God the Father I see him as redemptive I see him as loving me even though I don't deserve him 
But if you went through something like this, or even if you grew up in a dead religious church that taught you that you're, you're never good enough, you've got to keep, you keep working for his approval. You've got you you to do better because what you did was wrong, so you've got to do better to fix the wrong that you did. You've got to perform for his approval. You've got to pray more. You've got to do more. You've got to give more money away. Bless God. Again, a fear-based relationship versus a love-based relationship. See, a love-based relationship is like, no matter what I do, I'm loved. Good, bad, or ugly. My, my sons and daughters, they understand I love them because they're mine. When they're bad, I spank them, correct them. When they do wrong, why? Because I want them to be quality parts of our society. I want them to be great men and women of God. And what's that rebellion, that wrong decision, if that continues on in their life, it'll ultimately kill them. They act that way out on the street, they're going to get shot. They act that way with a judge, they're going to spend forever in prison. They act that way at school, they're going to flunk out. So I work that out of them. I'm not angry at them, but in that moment, I'm angry at the thing that's going to destroy them. See the difference? And if you don't understand who God the Father really is, His real nature is towards you, then every time you sin, I can't do it. I can't live for God. Because I know He's mad at me. I don't even want to talk to Him because I, I just can't stop it. I just can't stop being a pornographer. I just can't stop being an idiot. I just can't. Can't so I just quit. Can't do it. Because you don't have the right imagery of the Father whose love is long-suffering. And you don't recognize you're a son or a daughter because your imagery of what a son and daughter is is skewed. The second thing that it'll create, as Joyce Myers pointed out, is that you won't enjoy life. So you're always driven. You're always working harder to do better. You're always trying to get ahead. That new car didn't satisfy you still. And your kids and your and your spouse, that's why you burn through relationships. Because you can't enjoy today. You can't enjoy now. You can't enjoy the house you have now because you want to gotta have a bigger one because it'll make you feel good about yourself. Because you're not satisfied in who you are because you're not satisfied in who he is because who he is is skewed in your mind. And he's always asking you for more, always wanting you to be better, always been better. And as a result of that, you don't see that he's satisfied and you're never satisfied. And you can't enjoy life. This whole series is called God is Happy. The reason why is because I want you to know that you can be happy because our God is happy. You can be content. You should be, actually. But it starts here and now of asking God to help you, help you to see him for who he is. I want you to close your eyes with me around the room. And I want you to let God minister to you. I want you to ask him, say, Lord, I, I don't have a good imagery of you. I don't know what you've been through. Maybe you had an abusive family. Maybe you had a great mom and dad, but for whatever reason, you grew up in a religious environment, and as a result, you, you keep trying to perform for God's favor. You keep trying to be good and not be bad. It's exhausting. If I interviewed your children, or if I interviewed your spouse, would they say you enjoy life? Or would they say you're never satisfied? You're, just, you're like, this thing keeps pushing you. You can't just sit down and enjoy the house you have now, the lawn you have now, the car you drive now, the children that you have now. You can't just enjoy your lot in life right now because joy escapes you because on the inside you're not happy and you're serving a God in your mind that's not happy either and I'm asking God to deliver you here and now Father in the name of Jesus we love you we need you God Lord some of us have imagery of you that you're absent because we had absentee family members parents mom or a dad some of us had a brutal childhood some of us Lord God we had good childhood, but then we got into church and the representation that we saw was 
You're never happy. You're never satisfied. It's never good enough. You've got to keep doing more. Keep doing more. Keep doing more. God, I ask you right now to deliver us. Right now, in Jesus' name. Deliver us. Deliver us. We don't have to perform for your love. You love us because we're yours. When we said yes to you, you said yes to us. And your mercies are renewed every morning. You're long-suffering. You're, you're the God of peace. You're the God of joy. <laughs> you're not the God of anger and wrath. Couldn't find you represented in that way anyway in the gospel or in the Old Testament. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name, freedom would happen in this place. Supernatural freedom. Unspeakable. Not even able to identify how it happened. But deliver us here and now. Let the word of God be true and every other word a lie. Let the imagery of who you really are stamp us on our brain, on our soul from this day forward. The confidence that we are loved. The confidence, the safety, the security that you are good and you have nothing but good in store for us. The confidence that you discipline us because you love us. And when we're getting spanked, it's enjoyable because you're correcting something, not because you're trying to destroy us. Not from a position that you are angry and, and, you, and, you, and, and we're proving the point that we're not good enough. Just the opposite. That where we are weak, you are strong. You will be strong for us. You will help us and bring us through because you love us. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give a call for anyone in the room today, anyone watching by way of live stream that might say, Pastor, i got to be honest. I don't know the God you're talking about. I don't have a relationship like you keep inferring. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if I died and I stood before Jesus, he wouldn't look at me and say, well done. He'd look at me and say, what happened? Why wouldn't you let me into your life? I pushed him away, Pastor. I'll be honest, I pushed him away. I've lived for myself. I've never even really surrendered myself to the living God. I've done religion, but I don't know relationship. Friend, I got such good news for you. Today's a day of change for you. Today's a day of transformation for you. God wants to come into a real relationship with you. You say, oh, that's amazing. How does that happen? Well, the Bible says it like this, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except coming through Jesus. And then it also says, so how do you get that relationship with him? The Bible says it like this, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one. He's the way. He's the son of the living God. And that in that expression, in that engagement, it continues on, it says, and he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You will become a son and a daughter in that moment, just a moment of confession, a moment of I'm yours, God, a moment of prayer, a moment of God, I need you and I want to serve you. Once you become a son or a daughter in the faith, then he starts training you and teaching you how to live uprightly and, and helping you out of your old ways. That, that, that takes a process. But today, as your head is bowed and your eyes closed, if you say, Pastor, that's me. I need Jesus in my life. Pastor, that's me. I'm away from God. Maybe you used to be a Christian, but you walked away. Maybe you're separated, divorced, and you know good and well that you don't have a relationship anymore and you want to reestablish that. I'd like to pray with you about that. I'd like to lead you in a relationship with Christ. I'd like to lead you in connecting with him. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're either not a Christian, you want to become one, or you used to be and you walked away and you want to come home, would you let me pray with you? Would you let me lead you back to Christ? I want a simple prayer. If that's you, no one's looking around. This is a very private, very deep moment. I don't want to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. I don't want everybody to know it's you. But me and you and Jesus need to acknowledge that something's happening here in your heart and you're ready to make him Lord. And I'd like you to help me 
by saying, that's me, Pastor, if that's you. And I want you just to lift your hand right where you're at and say, that's me, Pastor, it's time. I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm ready to change. God bless you, sir. Anybody else? Pray for me, Pastor, it's time. Thank you, sweet love. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for your honesty. Yep, thank you. God bless you. Yes, sir. Anybody else? Give you about two or three more seconds. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want a relationship with the living God. I'm ready to be a Christian. I'm ready to come back to Christ. If that's you, throw your hand up quickly. God bless you. Two more seconds quickly. Amen. You can put your hands down. Now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of repentance, a prayer of connection. In the moment that you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, he will become your Christ in that moment, in this holy moment. In fact, I want to get everyone in the audience to pray out loud with you so you're not alone. But those that lifted their hand, I want you to mean it with all of your heart. Say it like this. Say, Jesus, a little, bit, little, little better. Jesus, today I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I admit I've lived for myself. But today, I ask you to forgive me. Jesus, I declare you are my Lord. Cleanse me. Make me whole. Write my name in your book of life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I promise to serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Keep your head bowed for just a moment. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for every man and woman who lifted their hand, who prayed that from sincerity, even those who maybe didn't lift their hand, a little intimidated, but they prayed that prayer as coming and bowing their knee or their heart, if you will, before you. God, I pray right now they would sense your peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding with you. I pray they feel the joy of being right with you. Not perfect as a human, but being right with you. And then, Lord, now as they start that journey of a relationship, just like when I first started dating my wife, I had to get to know her. I had to learn her ways. Lord, as they start learning you, and they start learning to obey you and follow you, Lord God, that you will be there in ever-present help in time of trouble. And that, Lord God, this relationship's going to deepen. Best friends is what they're going to become with you. And, Jesus, I pray that today, today they would be marked forever. And that when the thoughts come, ah, you didn't mean that. Ah, you don't really want to serve God. You don't mean that. That they'll be able to say, that's not true. Because the peace that's on my life I've never had before. The joy in knowing that the living God loves me and I love him. And I'm his son, I'm his daughter. Lord, may that permeate every part of their being. In the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said amen.